pray the Lord would bless our time in his word. Indeed, Lord, we come to you this morning with sin and with weakness, with frailty. Both of these things prevent us from seeing the truth and loving the truth and acting out the truth, Lord. And so please help us. Please have the pure truth of your word cast away the darkness in our hearts and our minds. Let us not have our sin, our pride, get in the way of accepting what your word teaches us. And indeed, Lord, please give us wisdom to understand the depths of your word. Please bless us now. Amen. Well, if you turn to the book of Titus for one last time, uh, at least with me, you can do so on your own whenever you want. Uh, we're, we're finishing up the book of Titus this morning, uh, looking at verses 8 to 15. And uh, really what these verses are about, they're a bit eclectic, a bit staccato, some different ideas represented in these few verses. But overall, the verses are about theology the role of theology in the life of the church. And uh, by theology, you know, to state the obvious, let me be clear, theology, I mean the study of God and the things related to God. And uh, the reason I've, I've entitled the sermon Good Theology is because I mean good theology in two ways. I mean good theology in terms of proper, sound, correct beliefs about God and the things related to God. But I also mean by good theology... I mean theology that produces good works in the lives of those who believe it. This has been one of the key themes throughout the book of Titus. That if you believe the right things about God, if you have correct, good theology, that theology is going to express itself in your life in an abundance of good works, in a people that are zealous for good works. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our last verses of the book of Titus. Verse Verses 8 to 15 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Um, we're talking about good theology this morning. Among the topics of systematic theology, eschatology is the one that, first of all, has the most uh, varied opinions. And for that and other reasons, eschatology is also, uh, a lot of ways, the redheaded stepchild of the topics of systematic theology. It's not always seen as the most uh, irrelevant, uh, a good way to get distracted, a good way to make uh, small things a priority. Yet, I want to talk for a second about the importance of eschatology. Our, our passage isn't about eschatology, 
But my argument is that by showing how the significant effect that eschatology can have in your life, I want to establish the greater point that all of theology is going to have a profound effect on your life. Yeah, whenever I think about the incredibly significant effect of theology on your life, even points that seem small, I think of eschatology and uh, I think of the Puritans. Um, Throughout history, there have, for the most part, uh, been two types of beliefs of eschatology. There's a belief that things are going to get worse and worse, and then Christ will return. That's the belief uh, that I have, that most of us in this room have. Uh, It's the belief of dispensationalism. For most of church history, though, the more common belief is that things are going to get better and better, and they're going to get so good that Jesus is going to say, all right, it's good enough for me to come back. Such a belief, uh, either direction, is going to have a significant impact on how you operate towards the world. Particularly with the case of the Puritans, the belief that things had to get really, really good for Christ to return And their eager desire for Christ's return inspired them to do some radical things that I think we can see quite clearly were sinful. Uh, Most specifically, I'm referring to the 1600s in England when there was a civil war uh, between uh, the high church Anglicans who were kind of sympathetic towards Catholicism. They supported the king and they were known as the Cavaliers. And their opponents in the Civil War were the Puritans, the ones whose theology we would agree with for the most part. They, uh, they supported Parliament, and they were known as the Roundheads. A lot, they, that they even engaged in a civil war, and eventually they were successful in their civil war. They won, and the climax of their victory was they executed the King of England. You'd think, you know... Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. You'd think whatever that means, it means don't kill a king. But they did. Why? Their theology told them to do that. They believed that they had to make England, you know, which is kind of funny. What about the rest of the world? They were myopic. They were focused on England, and they thought we have to make England perfect. We have to get rid of this evil king, and if we do that, then Christ will return. And they did it, and as we know, Christ didn't return. This was very disappointing for a lot of the Puritans, even Oliver Cromwell, who became the leader afterwards. Eventually, he became just quite despondent and not very involved because he's like, I can't believe Jesus didn't come back. We did all this. We fought this war. We won. We killed the king, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Theology, even something as small as, as eschatology, can have a profound impact on your life. The reverse holds true as, as well. In the early 1900s is when dispensationalism became more popular as the belief, very simply, that things are going to get worse and worse until Christ returns. That also had an impact on the people who believed it. Uh, for the early part of the 1900s, the fundamentalists who believed that, again, people whose theology we would agree with for the most part, they kind of just withdrew from public life. They thought, if the world's going to hell, what's the point in trying to influence politics, uh, preach the gospel very much, we should just withdraw and wait by ourselves until Christ returns. And of course, there's a bunch of more moderate beliefs in between these two extremes, but I want you to see the point. Even for normal, average folks, their belief about something seemingly extraneous as eschatology can have a profound impact on your life. And even more so with all the more central aspects of theology. It matters what you believe. 
And so what we are going to look at this morning in particular is your responsibility as an individual Christian towards good theology. Good theology is necessary for every single believer's life. You can't just opt out of it. It's necessary, but it's also dangerous, okay? So we can't just launch into it, uh, you know, head on with uh, pride and arrogance. We also need to be careful, even considering the Puritans. If you go too strongly in a certain direction, there can be serious consequences. And I know, as I say this, that I'm talking to two different groups of people. There's some of you in here who love theology, It's a great pleasure of yours. You like to buy theology books and you read about it. And me saying that you need to study theology, you're like, amen. That's what I love to do. That's my hobby. That's great that you love it, that that you have a natural inclination for that. But you also need to take the correction and direction of these verses. You need to be warned about the propensity that you have as someone who likes theology to get distracted in things that may be interesting to you but are ultimately irrelevant and unprofitable. You need to be aware of your inclination, perhaps, to get sucked into controversies that unnecessarily divide the bride of Christ. And then on the other hand, some of you don't care at all for theology, or maybe you just care a little bit. You don't like these discussions about theology. You don't like it when Pastor John and I diverge into stuff like that. For you, the Christian life, it's all about the good works, the practical stuff, the love. Again, you also need to be corrected by these verses. You likewise have things to add. You are less likely to get sucked into these unnecessary controversies. But you also need to be reminded that no matter how you naturally feel about it, you need good theology for your life. You truly do. And so I ask then as we look at these verses that you think about wherever you come from, What can I learn from these verses about how I value and approach theology? Uh, Again, as I said, these verses this morning, they're a little staccato, they're a little eclectic, and so what we're going to do is really look more at the forest than the individual trees. Uh, That being said, point number one is this. Good theology must be discerned. Look first of all at verse 9, please. Paul says there, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't know the specifics of these debates back in the time of of Paul and Titus. Uh, We don't know exactly what the foolish controversies were, uh, but we can have a general idea that what they were doing is people were taking topics from the Bible, uh, topics related to theology, And they were taking these topics, these passages of Scripture, in unnatural directions. They were taking it in ways that God never intended them to be taken. We could speculate a little bit just as examples. Maybe in terms of genealogies, people were uh, speculating that uh, because Methuselah lived 969 years, that meant something special. Uh, Maybe they said, hey, I'm a descendant of Lamech or whatever random name, and so that means something special about me. Again, they were taking some small detail, something that's not very important, and they were giving it undue importance, importance that is not given it by Scripture. And in that way, they were making some kind of foolish controversy, taking a part of Scripture or theology and twisting it and taking it into unnatural directions. 
The point being that just because a discussion is related to or even based on the Bible does not mean it's a worthwhile discussion. That's not because there's parts of Scripture that are irrelevant, but us as humans are very good at twisting Scripture and taking it and giving parts uh, undue importance. I think the reason this happens is because, I mean, first of all, the Bible, it is indeed the greatest authority, yet it does not give exhaustive information about spiritual things. And there are things that we would like to have the Bible speak on that we don't know, and so we can take small details and we can try and impose more information into the Bible than the Bible actually contains. Uh, One modern example of this would be the farmer, William Miller. Uh, One time a pastor said that if William Miller... Uh, as in heaven someday, we should all give him a good kick in the shins. Uh, William Miller, he was a, a captain, I believe, in the War of 1812. He's an American, and he was a deist, but then he was converted, and with his newfound passion and zeal for Christianity, he started studying the Bible. Unfortunately, he didn't do it with uh, great principles, and one day around 1816, he came to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which reads in the KJV, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. William Miller, without any evidence, without any you know, uh, outsize, uh, or outside uh, interpretation, he concluded that this verse is saying that the world was going to end at 2,300 years after Daniel wrote that line. No one else had ever said that before. There's no evidence in the text that that's what that means. But he took those verses and he imposed a meaning from his own mind. He thought that must be what Daniel means. And so he went and he looked up some book and found out when this prophecy of Daniel was written. Some guy estimated it to be 457 B.C. Abracadabra, he does the math. The world is going to end in 1843. For about 25 years, he goes around telling people the world is going to end in 1843. And in doing this, he got a pretty big following. A lot of people known as the Millerites believe that the world was going to end in 1843. Um, For them, the the year 1843 is now known as the Great Disappointment. Because as you can see, Jesus did not return. The world did not end. Some of his disappointed followers uh, turned into the group we now know as the Seventh-day Adventists who continue Miller's tradition of making mountains out of molehills and twisting Scripture in unnatural ways. The thing is, though, with the Seventh-day Adventists, with William Miller, uh, with the people back in Paul's days who were involved with these foolish controversies, all of these people would not self-identify as people involved with foolish controversies. All of them would say, no, my issue, my pet issue is the biggest deal of all. It is foundational. It's fundamental. How would we know whether they are right? How do we know that what they're saying is truly relevant and important or if it's just something that's, yeah, truly irrelevant? Indeed, there are people who would accuse us of the same things. They would say our insistence upon Uh, teaching about salvation, about the inerrancy of the Bible, they say, you're just making mountains out of molehills. That's not really important. Love is what's important. The question that I have is how do we know who is right? How do we know when a discussion related to the Bible is worthwhile? Again, point number one, it must be discerned. Each of these, through careful deliberation and discussion of Scripture, 
they must be decided if a given topic is worthwhile or not. And then beyond that, if, if you've even decided this topic is worthwhile, then you need to, from there, discern what is true and what is false. What is good theology? What is false theology? See, while Titus uh, is to avoid foolish controversies, look at verse 8. Paul says there that the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. That is, there were certain truths that Titus was to avoid, and there were others that he was to insist upon. Some are worthwhile, some are small deals, some are really big deals. Specifically, in this case, it's the truth about salvation in verses 4 to 7 that Titus must insist on to the people of Crete. For as he taught about, say, the Holy Spirit's role in salvation, someone in the congregation might respond, well, I'm glad, Titus, that you have found something that works for you. Uh, You feel so strongly about this. That's very good. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying I have a different approach than you. Uh, It's not best for me. Uh, Just as some people disagree about the Sabbath or the identity of the Antichrist, so we disagree about the Holy Spirit's role in a person's conversion. Let's just agree to disagree. And what Paul says to Titus is, no, you cannot agree to disagree. You must insist upon the truth of Scripture that Titus has received from Paul and the other apostles. Titus is compelled to make a big deal about this teaching and salvation. Now look at verse 10. It says there that for a, uh, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Someone who stirred up division, it would likely be by teaching false doctrine. Our unity as believers comes not from similar feelings or similar personalities, but a common devotion to the same truth that we have through Christ and the Spirit, one mind. And such a person that threatened the unity of the church by questioning the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of the church, that person was to be confronted straight on. He was to be removed. Again, this connects to the topic. Good theology must be discerned. How do we know what we ought to insist upon? And on the other hand, what is so irrelevant that it should be ignored altogether? What hills are worth dying on and what are mole hills that should be ignored? Further, let's say that we have a person that is contradicting the theology of the church, and so that church de- the church determines that they are to be removed. How do we know that they're not a bold Martin Luther standing up to the corrupt hierarchy of the church? Again, it's not obvious. It's not patently obvious. It must be discerned. Careful thought, attention, dedication to these issues is required. First, a word then to those who don't have a natural inclination to the study and discussion of theology. You are valuable because you are unlikely to get caught up in these foolish controversies. You, in a lot of ways, can be the fabric of the unity of our church. You don't want to get distracted by these unnecessary things. You want to focus on unity and love, and that's good, and that's a blessing, and our church needs it. But on the other hand, you need to recognize that you still have a responsibility to discern what is good theology and what is not. You can't just say, that's my pastor's job. It's your responsibility as well. And you shirk this responsibility at your own peril. Good theology, it's not obvious. Careful attention must be given to it. And now to the people who have a natural inclination to study theology. 
Just because a topic is interesting to you and related to the Bible or theology does not mean it is worth your time. Furthermore, just because you like a biblical or theological topic does not mean that it is worth discussing. It does not mean that it is worth dividing over. Be very careful about judging someone's spiritual state because of a doctrine they hold. There are truly heresies that ought to be condemned in the strongest terms, but there has also throughout the course of church history been a lot of venom, bitterness, and ignorance expressed over foolish controversies. Do not be hasty in your condemnation of someone as a heretic or false teacher. Again, it's hard to discern good theology. It takes work, but by God's help, we can do it. The Roman Catholic Church, seeing this difficulty of discerning true doctrine, of discerning what Scripture teaches, they give an easy way out that for a lot of people is very attractive. They say, you individual people, you don't need to figure out theology on your own. Indeed, you can't. All you have to do is trust us, unerring clergy of the church, us magisterium. We have never been wrong and will never be wrong. It's simple. Just believe what we teach. Again, that, that can be enticing. In the world of Protestantism, when there's so much division, so much confusion, an easy solution like that is attractive. But it's not true. And it's not the right way. Us Protestants do the courageous thing. We do not accept the easy solution. Instead, we face this great challenge and boldly insist that it is every individual's responsibility to discern and believe what the Scriptures teach about theology. Tradition ought to be consulted and revered. Teachers and preachers ought to be consulted and revered. Yet every man and woman will have to answer for themselves whether they rightly handled the word of truth and gave the requisite attention, study, and discernment appropriate for the very words of God. Now, that leads us to point number two. Good theology must be displayed. For this raises the question, why is it so important that we know and believe good theology? Why can't I just say, yeah, this position's probably correct, and it's not worth my time to figure out what it is. I'll just believe what my pastor believes. Why is it so important that you give the requisite attention to study and come to convictions? Ultimately, it's because good theology must and will be displayed in your life. That's the answer of the book of Titus. If you believe good theology, you will bear good fruit. If you believe bad theology, you will bear worthless fruit. Look again at verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul wants Titus to insist on sound doctrine because it will cause those who receive it to be careful to devote themselves to good works which are excellent and profitable for all people, Christian and non-Christian alike. The particular example here is if you understand the immense grace that God has poured out on you in salvation when you were so undeserving, you will be diligent to show grace to others. On the other hand, if you neglect true doctrine and attend to what is false or irrelevant, then you will be lacking in fruit. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. If you neglect good theology, your Christian life will be unprofitable and worthless. 
Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. This is very serious. If you want your life to matter, if you want your Christian life to matter, if you want to be beneficial to the church and to a lost and dying world, then you need to dedicate yourself to discerning and believing and embracing good theology. Furthermore, if your theology is not producing good works in your life, then you should question the soundness of your theology. In this respect, I always think of the theologian Karl Barth. Uh, If you don't know Karl Barth, uh, he was a a famous 20th century theologian. A lot of people would uh, say in their opinion he's the most uh, important theologian of the 20th century. And he was known for a new approach to theology that was neither liberal uh, nor orthodox. It was called neo-orthodox. And his theology's value is vigorously debated by theologians. Uh, But really, the most relevant point for me, amidst all the discussion about the fine points of his theology and his many works, the main point to me about Karl Barth is that for uh, decades of his life, he had an adulterous relationship with his secretary that he was completely unrepentant about. And not only was he unrepentant of this sexual immorality, but he was positively cruel to his wife, making her accept that his his mistress lived with them. Who cares what such a man taught about theology? Whatever his theology was, it did not produce good works in his life. This doesn't invalidate everything he ever taught, but in a way that it just makes us wonder, why would we read his stuff? Why would we listen to him talk about it? This guy can't even figure out how to love his wife. According to 1 Peter 3.7, this is someone whose prayers were hindered to God because he did not treat his wife in a gentle and respectful way. Who cares about his novel approach to theology? And of course, we must be humble in saying this. Of course, I have sin. Pastor John has sin. Every theologian and preacher I respect has sin. And so, in, in a real way, yes, there is a level of subjective opinion. What is a requisite amount of sin that disqualifies a person from teaching about theology? But the point stands that good theology ought to be demonstrated in the good works of the person who believes it. If you are living in unrepentant sin, don't boast about your good theology. Don't boast about the number of books you read and how much theology you know. If it's not demonstrated in your life, don't boast about it. And more than that, if you are in unrepentant sin, it may be time to inspect your theology that it is, in fact, biblical and true. There's a good chance that there is an aberrant belief that is driving you to continue to sin. Now please uh, look down to verse 13 and 14. Uh, We're going to skip the verse about Paul's Christmas plans that year. And uh, start there in verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Again, in order to not be unfruitful, you need to devote yourself to good works. And the particular good work here in verse 14 is the financial support of Zenos the lawyer and Apollos as they pass through Crete. Uh, We have no idea who Zenos the lawyer was. Uh, He just sounds like a compelling sci-fi crime drama. Zenos the lawyer. 
Apollos, though, we know a lot about him. He's all over the New Testament. He was a famous Christian preacher. Therefore, it's safe to assume that Zenos and Apollos, uh, their journey was a ministry journey. It was a missionary journey. They were going about somewhere, and they had to stop through Crete as they were going and preaching God's word, preaching the gospel. And what Paul says as he closes the book is, hey, speaking of good works, here's a good work for the people of Crete, Titus. Have them support our brothers, Zenos and Apollos, as they go through preaching sound theology. They want a good work. They want to be fruitful. Here's a great one. They can financially support the ministry of Zenos and Apollos. And indeed, that's a lesson for us. If you value good theology, you're going to financially support good theology. Where your heart is there, your treasure will be also. Your reception of good theology ought to be displayed in your financial support of the teaching of good theology. If you have truly received good theology, it's going to change you, it's going to make you generous, it's going to make you loving, it's going to make you love good theology, and it's going to cause you then to financially support good theology. Perhaps you know the story of uh, William Carey and Andrew Fuller. William Carey, he's known as the father of modern missions. And in the late 1700s, he was about to do something revolutionary for Protestants in Western Europe. He was going to become a missionary to India. And he was supported in his ministry by a number of Baptists back in England, led, most of all, by the famous theologian Andrew Fuller. And Fuller, he gave a great line that resonates to today. He said, it's like our brother William Carey, he's going into a dark and unexplored cave. And he's going by himself. But what we can do back in England is we can hold the rope for him as he goes down into the cave. It would be their financial support that would enable Carey to preach the gospel in India. Are you holding the rope? Yes, for missions, but also just for the proclamation of the word of God and sound theology all over the world. You might not be the one going into the cave preaching the good theology, but are you supporting? Are you holding the rope? Are you displaying the work of good theology in your life by reciprocally supporting the ongoing teaching of good theology? And if you're not, you are missing an opportunity for a good work. You are missing an opportunity to be fruitful. Ultimately, your support of good theology is not about the need that God has for your money. It's about the need that you have to do a good work. Paul says this explicitly in Philippians 4, 16 to 17. Listen to it. He's, he's thanking the Philippians for their gift. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is happy, not because he got money from the Philippians, but because the Philippians were able to do a good work. Paul didn't need the money. The Philippians needed the good work. God, good teaching will not pass away on God's watch. He doesn't need any of us. But do you want to do a good work? Do you want to be involved in something fruitful and profitable for the world? that will truly change lives, then financially support the teaching of good theology. When you do that, you become a co-laborer with the preacher of that news. You become a co-laborer as the Word of God produces fruit in the people's lives who hear it. Good theology must be displayed 
in lives of righteousness, kindness, love. And one particular example we see in Titus here is the good work of financial supporting, financially supporting sound teaching. Well, then point number three, our final remark about the responsibility that we as Christians have towards good theology is that it must be defended. Good theology must be defended. Because good theology is elusive and incredibly valuable, it must be defended. In verse 9, we see that there are certain topics of discussion that are simply to be avoided, ignored. Throughout his letters, there's all kinds of wrong teaching that Paul uh, addresses, that he interacts with, that he discusses. Evidently, these issues here in verse 9 were so irrelevant, were so obviously incorrect, that Paul doesn't even grace them with an argument. He just says, avoid these things, ignore these things. Some people crave controversy, debate. They love to be the contrarian, to argue about what others take for granted. And so they exaggerate minutia. These people, they ought to be ignored. No oxygen should be given to keep their fire going. We should not throw our pearls before swine. We should not answer a fool according to his folly, lest we become like him. So sometimes we defend good theology by ignoring. Other times, if you know the the next proverb, it's not only should uh, the fool not be answered according to his folly, but sometimes the fool should be answered according to his folly. Why? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes false teaching deserves head-on confrontation. That's what Paul talks about in verse 10. There are some people that can just be avoided, ignored. But others persist in their false teaching. And as these people do it, they stir up division. They threaten the truth that unifies believers. Uh, The word here that's translated in English as uh, stirring up division, that Greek word is where we eventually got our word for heretic, a person who believes unacceptable things about Christianity and by their beliefs is excluded from the church and the fellowship of the saints. Heresy is a belief that will damn you if you believe it. The church must, and the reason we do that, the reason that we It says, confront these people once and twice and then have nothing more to do with them. Again, it's because good theology must be defended. And note, please, that no one is getting expelled from the church for a theological mistake. We're not going to pass out some tests, and if you get one detail wrong about about the Trinity, you're gone. That's not how it works. The point here is not that somebody happened to have a wrong belief. All of us have wrong beliefs. Some of us might even have wrong beliefs about really important topics. That's not going to get you kicked out of the church. The problem with heretics is not an intellectual mistake. It's a sinful rebellion that causes them to stubbornly persist in their rejection of the authority of the church and most of all, the authority of Scripture. And eventually, when such a person is removed, it's not even really the church's fault, Paul says. Paul says that that person is self-condemned. It's their own fault. They're the ones who rejected God's word. They're the ones who rejected God's church. They're the ones who rejected the authorities of the church that God put in place. They have declared to all that they are outside of the church by their rebellion. And so Paul says they are self-condemned. 
And one other thing I'd like to note here is that while good theology must be defended, we can see here in these verses the emphasis that Paul gives to the local church being the one who defends the, the sound doctrine, the good theology. God has entrusted the church to defend the truth. And part of the sin of the division maker is that this person is ignoring the authority of the local church. The church, as, as Timothy says, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And God has given the church preachers and teachers to pass on the sound words of Scripture, sound theology. Of course, the problem with this is that there are false churches out there. There are churches who, with their authority, defend error and heresy, all the while proclaiming to be defenders of the truth. And so this is really what the Reformation was. It wasn't the establishment of a new church with new theology. There's no such thing as new good theology like there's no such thing as new good math. That which is true has always been true. The, the Reformation was a condemnation of the Roman Catholic Church. Not that we're going to go start a new one, but know that the one that's all around us is false. The one all around us has deviated from Scripture. It has deviated from the truth. It has abandoned its responsibility to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so what the Reformation was is really just as an establishment of new churches that was really just an identification of the believers who were still holding on to the tradition that is truly in Scripture, that had been passed on for centuries through faithful believers. It was not an invention of new theology. It was a recovery of the good theology that the church has always had because we have always had Scripture. We have always had the Spirit inside of us guiding us to the truth. So good theology, it must be defended. And God has commissioned His church to be the pillar and buttress of true theology. And yet, we must remember that a church only fulfills its role as a defender of theology when itself is faithful to the doctrine that Scripture teaches. In conclusion, again, I want to say, whether you are inclined to theology, whether you are naturally disinclined to theology, we all need each other. All of your natural inclinations, all of your particular gifts from God. We need those who love to discuss abstract concepts, and we need those who don't. And each one of us, no matter our background, no matter how we got there, no matter our feelings, we are going to have particular challenges as we attempt to be good stewards of good theology. And it's going to look different for each of us as well. What matters is that we value theology properly in our heart and we take the necessary cautions from Scripture. Those of us who naturally like theology need to be cautious that we don't start unnecessary fights or think that our good theology can replace good works. We have to be cautious about that. We have to be careful. We have to examine ourselves. And those of us who aren't naturally inclined to theology need to be cautious that we don't minimize the importance or difficulty of theology and think that we can do good works, that we can love, that we can be like Christ without believing the right things. It just can't be done. If you want to live a life that matters, that is loving, that is beneficial to others, you have to believe the right things. And it's not just going to be this easy thing that your heart just takes you to the right place. There's difficulty 
good, honest Christians have been wrong about theology. It takes hard work. It should humble us. It should humble us all. And that's the good news, though. As we're humbled with this, as we should be somewhat afraid of this monumental task of knowing who God is like and what he requires of us, that humility and fear should give us confidence that God is going to help us. He's going to equip us. As Paul told Timothy, think over carefully what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. We work hard thinking about it, giving it the requisite attention, but we do it with the confidence that God is going to help us. He is going to lead us to the truth. His Spirit is inside of us. We have His clear and perfect Word. Now, if you'll stand, uh, we'll pray for the Lord to help us in this way, and then I'll send you on your way with a benediction. Lord, first of all, I want to express our gratitude and thanks that we can know about you, Lord. We can only know about you, not because we are so smart as to reason our way up to you, but because you have condescended to us. And you, the eternal, invisible, omnipresent God, has condescended to reveal himself in human words and human concepts. Thank you, Lord, for doing that so that we can know you and so that we can live proper lives. Please help us all take advantage of this privilege that we have. Help us love your truth, love your word. Please, indeed, guide us to your truth so that we can see you and love you. And that proper understanding of your character would produce fruit in our lives. Help us be patient and gracious with each other who have different backgrounds, different approaches, different feelings. Help us realize that these natural proclivities are not what matters most of all. It's rather our unity in you, our unity in the truth. And the beauty of your body is that it is diverse, and we need one another. We need our differences. So please bless us now and for the rest of our lives as we seek to understand your word and live that out in our lives. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.